I'm Eitan Weinstein. And I'm Naor Menninger. And you're listening to Two Nice Jewish Boys. An opinion about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a bit like Superman boxers. Everybody's got one. And it seems that nowadays, no matter where you go, be it Indonesia or Wyoming, anyone with a pulse will tell you that while it's true that Arafat said no to Barack's peace offer in 2000, it doesn't really count since Barack was a lame duck by then. There's one thing, though, that the discussion about the conflict really lacks. It's subtle, yes, but if used wisely, it has the potential to redefine our thinking process and our perceptions. This thing is objectivity. Objectivity regarding the conflict. Is there even such a thing? Let's just say that if there is, sitting with us today is the guy who brings it to the table. Dr. Micha Gudman is a research fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem and the head of the Beit Midrash Israeli and Prat, a Torah-studying institute for young adults. He authored several bestsellers and his most recent book, Catch 67, was recently published in English. In the book, Dr. Gudman tries to rethink and deconstruct the most basic perceptions about the conflict in an effort to reach new insights, untangle the axioms, and maybe, just maybe, disarm the time bomb we're all sitting on. How does he do it? Two NJB are thrilled to have Dr. Micha Goodman with us today to find out. This podcast is made in collaboration with The Jewish Journal. Let's talk about, I guess, let's start with uh, the concept of zero-sum game. Is this a zero-sum game? Is every win that Israel has a loss for the Palestinians? Is every win for the Palestinians a loss for Israel? Well, it definitely seems that way throughout history. It's obviously false. And I think that's the problem. I think we're trapped in a false dichotomy. Now, if it's okay with you guys, with two nice Jewish boys, I'll try to shift the conversation to Israeli debate about the conflict and not the conflict itself. Okay. This is, I think, where we're trapped in a real zero-sum game. Where most Israelis today think that we have two options and two options only, and this is our impossible dilemma. Option number one, we have to end the conflict. The status quo is unsustainable. It's going to collapse any minute. By the way, that is the opinion of leading generals in the Israeli army and the intelligence community, that the status quo is fragile and it's going to collapse and we might according to Gadi Eisenkopf, the chief of staff, gives between 60 to 80 percent that, that, that it will collapse and we'll see chaos in the West Bank. This is very serious. So people are saying the status quo is impossible. We can't manage the conflict anymore. Therefore, we have to solve it once and for all. Two-state solution. That's the deal. Option Pe- one. That's option number one. Seems very very persuasive. Yep, you have me convinced. If you can't manage the conflict, (laughs) you have to solve the conflict. Option number two, you can't solve the conflict. It's unsolvable. It's unsolvable for so many reasons. One, the Middle East is unstable. And nation states are collapsing. Yemen is is breaking into two. Iraq collapsed. Uh, Tunisia collapsed. Libya collapsed. Syria. Syria collapsed. Nation states, is this, this is a question that Henry Kissinger asked in 2006, is this the time to create another Arab nation state? And what if it won't survive the same powers that are tearing down other nation states in the Middle East? These chaotic powers are tearing down ancient countries, countries we thought were were traditional and stable. Will a new, fresh 
Palestine survive the powers that Iraq and Syria didn't? And then what would happen? We'd have a dysfunctional, not very sovereign Palestinian state in that chaos that will be created in the West Bank Different brutal forces will enter, which means this is not the time for a two-state solution. We can't end the conflict now. The only option we have left is manage the conflict, hold on to the status quo, try to keep things the way they are. So here's what I just described to you and to our listeners, is the dichotomy. You just convinced me of both options within two minutes. <laughs> and I think like, it's... <laughs> and I don't know where to... <laughs> so, and those are the two options. One, one camp says, we can't manage the conflict. We have to solve it. The other says, we can't solve it, so let's manage it. <laughs> so, so, I mean, it's, it's a great example, I guess, because the way you describe it, and in such fervor, both of them, kind of, yes. you get into the character. And listening to you, I really do. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. And then you describe option two, I'm like, that makes sense. And maybe there's part of the problem. It's like when you have these such like well-founded, well-narrated ideas and they're like entrenched, how do you break it down? Well, first of all, this is what I – in Catch 67 in my book, this is what I did. I tried to really understand the left from within uh, to give the most persuasive arguments the the left has and and to try to persuade the readers. That we have to leave the West Bank, we have to found two state solutions. Not an easy mission. mission. What? Not an easy mission. Not, and at the same time, I try to yeah, I try to dive into the right wing point of view and put together the best arguments and try to be as persuasive as I can. And also the Palestinian point of view. And I also tried to do that with the Palestinian point of view, but that wasn't I tried to, but I didn't put as much effort because it's a book right. about the internal Israeli debate. But I tried to, it's it's right. And try to lead my readers and myself to a moment of complete confusion. And this is not a confusion that comes from thinking, oh, they all got it wrong. It's a confusion from the thought that, hey, maybe they all got it right. I think that's a more interesting confusion. What happens if you realize that maybe the left, the Israeli left, that says that if Israel stays in the West Bank, we have no future because we're risking our national majority by sitting there. They're right. And what happens if the Israeli right realizes that if we leave the West Bank, we shrink into borders that are not very defendable, and we're risking being the chaos of the Middle East to the verge of Tel Aviv? Maybe they're also right. Maybe if we stay in the West Bank, we are risking our national majority. And if we leave, we're risking our national security. Now, that's a catch, right? Mm -hmm. That's the catch. And I think many Israelis are living this catch. This is something that many Americans don't know about Israelis. Israelis in the past decade lost their political certainty. They're how so confused. They're con- like Israelis are known for being very certain, knowing everything about anything. But when it comes to politics, most of them lost their certainty. They're like something like, you know, we can't stay in the West Bank. We can't yeah. leave the West Bank. Um, if we stay, we're screwed. If we leave, we're screwed. Yeah. But that's until election day. On election day, most of them go and vote for the right. Well, because people, that's because politics changed in Israel. It's not the politics of policies anymore. It's the politics of identities. Which means I don't go vote for the party or the leader that will represent the right policies that I believe in. 
Also in America, that's not what elections are anymore. And it's about I vote for my tribe. Isn't it? The, I, you say it in your book, and it strikes me as a little bit patronizing approach. No, I mean, you underestimate the Israelis when you say that. Maybe. When you talk to the average Israeli, they, they are, aren't they more, I don't know, sure of themselves? Ideological. Than, Oh, well, no, the idea, ideologues do not lose their certainty. The ideologues on both sides, people on the right will say, yeah, we could stay in the West Bank forever, everything is okay. And ideologues on the left, yeah, we'll have a, a peace treaty that will guarantee our security, it's okay, don't worry. Both sides say don't worry. But it's the 70% that are in the middle. By the way, the 70% in the middle don't identify themselves as centrists. Mm-hmm. Because they belong to tribes and to identities. But policy, what? and today being a centrist in Israel doesn't mean that you're between right and left you're somehow simultaneously in right and in left and this is in many many polls Israelis don't trust that there is it's possible to have stable Palestinian state and yet they would like a two-state solution this perplexity is shown poll after poll in Israel regarding 60 70 percent of the Israelis which are non-ideological you want so to, let me, yeah. I want to break down something before we get any further because you you mentioned in your book and you mentioned now like these identities the identity politics can we break down what that is exactly what is the difference between identity politics and in your mind what would be good politics so identity politics is that you um, you know there is a um, I had a conversation with a senior Israeli politician that used to work with Arthur Finkelstein mm-hmm The number one pollster, polling, yeah. guru, yeah, politics. Right. I love Ashalom. He passed away, I think. Uh, yeah, uh, um, a few months ago. Yeah, he passed And, um, and um, so, he, so, this, so this, I'm quoting a senior Israeli politician quoting Arthur Finkelstein. Okay. And he says, when you send out polls and you want to know what's the question that will predict the voting pattern of the voter. So it used to be, okay, Is the voter for abortion and the candidate is for abortion? Maybe that would predict it. Not anymore. Is it for... So, like, like there, he says, policies don't... The policies voters believe in don't predict the politicians they'll vote for. It's not like we, most of us, think, okay, these are the policies I believe in. This politician represents most of my policies. I'm going to vote for him. That's mm-hmm. not how it works anymore. The question that predicts, and this is Arthur Finkelstein, Which politician you're going to vote for is one question. Is he someone like you? <laughs> That's so sad. Yeah. <laughs> Not like what does he think about, the, you know, refugees. No. Is he... We vote for ourselves. Okay. Now, when How you're does, going... <laughs> but, but, but it doesn't make any sense, this theory. Because when you go to the Tikva market and you talk to a Yemenite and he votes for Bibi. So how does... What... Those are two he different might want to believe that he oh. is like Bibi. Well, this Bibi is something to understand like about the brilliance of Bibi. What Bibi does to the person in the Tikva market, Tikva market is a market in, in, uh, in, uh, in a Tikva neighborhood in, in, Tikva, in the south of Tel Aviv. And, and the people there don't behave and look like Bibi and Tanya, which has a big house in Caesarea. Right. right. That's what you're making. There's a big yes. social, economical. And how does he get the people that are not from not his social class to feel like I'm someone like them, right. like him? So Bibi has a very, this is the Bibi move. How can he create a coalition of people, immigration, immigrants from Russia, people from the lowest social economic class? Settlers. Settlers. <laughs> and all-time Likudniks. Like he has this coalition of people that really have nothing in common. They all have one thing in common. They all feel like 
for the right or wrong reasons, that they are outsiders. That they were not really accepted here. And you know what Netanyahu does every elections? He comes out with the outsider narrative. I'm not accepted. I'm rejected. And the Israeli left really helps that campaign. An underdog. He's the underdog. And the Israeli left really helps that campaign by bashing him personally. And every attack on Bibi helps to make the point, you see, I'm rejected. I'm just like you. And they vote for the outsider. Now, here's a paradox. Bibi is prime minister for over 10 years. And he still experiences being an outsider, which enables all the outsiders to vote for the ultimate insider as an outsider. There's a, you know, Amit Segal, the Israeli uh, political pundit. He's a very smart guy. And he says, I said this in Hebrew, Rak Only in crazy Israel to vote for the governing party is a protest vote. Right. And that, so that's Bibi's brilliant move. It's and kind of been replicated in the United States that's now with Trump. Maybe. So, but, but Bibi really masters this move. And, yes, building a coalition of people that experience himself subjectively as outsiders and then presenting himself as the ultimate outsider. By the way, he's successful in doing that because I think he really feels like he's an outsider. Right. We, we'll go into Bibi psychology if you want to later because he was raised by an outsider. Yeah. So it's in his blood. We just did mm-hmm. an episode with the, the new biography. Uh, Ancho. Okay, yeah. so you know what I'm talking about. He was raised yeah. by the ultimate outsider. So he has it in his blood. So he really radiates outsiderness. Right. And therefore, all the outsiders vote for him. They say, he's someone like myself. I see. So that's my BB interpretation. Maybe right. he isn't. I mean, if it's just a coalition of outsiders, they're not a majority, meaning they're not the insiders. Well, it, it isn't enough, a way... in Israel, the majority of Israelis are outsiders. Yeah. Because there's no, there is no real majority of any type. That's right. So if you could put together all the people that feel like they're outsiders and they'll look at you and they'll say, hey, he is one of us, yeah. you'll win the election. Yeah. So let's go back to the book. Yeah, that was a. <laughs> so what? What? Why did you write it then? What led you to to this journey of trying to decipher? Well, yes. Well, this this is a part of a larger journey. Trying uh, realizing some the following that um, that realizing two things. One that politics is interesting, and there are ideas behind politics, and they're interesting, and our conversation is never interesting. Our conversation is always about calling names, about labeling. So we have such an interesting topic here, and the conversation about it is so boring and devastating. And I believe that the philosophy behind the politics, the ideas behind the policies are very interesting. And I also think that people are interested in these ideas, meaning if you'll speak to people, left-wingers about settlers, they'll shut down. If you'll speak about a philosopher called Rav Cook, they might get interested. If you speak to right-wingers about left-wingers, they'll shut down. If you speak about Beryl Katzanelson or Ben-Gurion, their philosophy, they'll open up. Mm-hmm. So let's not make it about labels. Let's make it about ideas. And maybe that's a way to heal this conversation, which is a broken-down conversation. And I'll tell you something else. I feel like we need to heal this conversation, not just for the sake of having a good conversation, which I'm always for a good conversation. I think our only way to really deal with the conflict itself creatively is to have a great conversation about it. Mm-hmm. Because as we know from high-tech Israel, the best ideas come 
when we have great conversations. Yeah. The kinds of conversations where there's brainstorming and we share ideas and we're not afraid to say what we think. We're not afraid to be labeled. And that's those are the areas, like in high tech and technology, where we see a lot of innovation. There's a healthy conversation. There's a lot of innovation. In Israeli politics, there's no innovation, no new ideas, recycling the same ideas. And the root of lack of creativity, I think, comes from not having a healthy conversation. Yeah, I think, I mean, you pointed out in your book that a lot of it has to do with this emotional attachment, this personal attachment we have yeah. to our own ideas. Yes. As it, like uh, you, you uh, paralleled it to materialism, like we own our, our things and we own our ideas and we need to mm-hmm. kind of detach ourselves from that. Remember the movie Fight Club? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So there's, well, for our listeners that didn't see the movie, I don't want to ruin it, but there's two characters <laughs> <laughs> and um, and one guy is called Tyler Durden, mm-hmm. right? He he's the um, he's Edward he's not Norton. Brad Pitt, right? He's not no, Edward, yeah. And he's addicted to buying things. Every time he has anxiety, he has to go buy things. And there's a moment where the other guy, Brad Pitt, holds him tightly and says to him, "You are not the things you own." And I remember that line. This was like 15 years ago. I felt this echoes the best critique on capitalism I heard. That in capitalist societies, we have a tendency to see ourselves in what we own. Like, I own that car. That car becomes a part of who I am. Right. And I own that house. That is not something I own. That is who I am. Like, our material somehow slips into our identity. And it feels so good, though. <laughs> exactly. But if we're not our things, then what are and we? we're not our ideas. So, so I ask... Maybe, what maybe that move we do with materialism, yeah. we separate. We are not the things we own. If somebody scratches my car, he didn't scratch me. If I lose my house, I didn't lose my life. That's not American. Am, that's not American. I know. Yeah. And figuring that out, I think, is spiritual growth. I think deeper spiritual growth is realizing that my opinions also, just my opinions, not who I am. Because when I think that my opinions are who I am, if I think if my if my if my vision about um, the West Bank becomes who I am, so you can't ever persuade me otherwise. Because by changing my opinion, I'm changing my actual identity. So building a distance between us and our opinions enables us to stay open-minded. So would you be willing to change that opinion? That's a good paradox. <laughs> it's another catch. Another catch. <laughs> so it's it's funny because it's true though. I feel that way about Israeli politics that there's no real ideas being thrown around. I just noticed there's a book on the shelf of uh, Friedrich Hayek, and I, I I myself now starting to learn some new ideas, and I'm looking at Israeli politics, and I can't find yeah. any buddy that espouses. It's kind of like everybody's just kind of on this moving train. And they're just spitting out these labels, you know, these 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 ideas, not ideas, but these uh, these mantras that have been thrown around for like, so long. It was interesting. The book came out in Israel when it came out in Israel, and the big question was: Is this left wing or right wing? Yeah. Like instead yeah. of trying to f- understand the book, so Ehud Barak comes out with this big article trying to prove that it's actually right wing book masked by left wing, and people on the like Chagai Segal, he's the chief editor of of the Makor Rishon, a right wing newspaper, said you have to understand, be careful of Goodman and Cat sixty seven. It's a left wing book, and it's masking itself as objective. And the main, my main problem with this with this critique was that what they're doing is that they're exemplifying everything I'm writing against. 
Let's try to measure opinions and ideas not by their labels, but by their contents. What does it matter if it's you? And I mean, if you think that if you manage to label something, it's right wing, let's say. So everything you think about right wing, now you think about that. It's just a shortcut. Mm-hmm. It's a shortcut. It enables you not to think what you really think about a certain approach. So make it about ideas, not about labels. Mm-hmm. Is I think a li- is one of the ways we could liberate this conversation and making it interesting again. And again, making the conversation interesting is what will make it also creative. And God knows we need to be creative in order to deal with this catch. So what ideas did you approach in writing this book? So, uh, so, so I think after realizing that there is a um, – that we're living in a dichotomy – Either you solve the conflict, you manage the conflict, both make sense, and we can't have both. So we're kind of facing the following situation. We can't manage the conflict, it will collapse, we can't solve it, it's now unsolvable. I think these are two statements which are very probable. And where does that put us? Now many Israelis, how do they react to this perplexity? They said, okay, let's deal with other issues. Economy. Economy. Haredi, uh, ultra-orthodox, like our relationship with the ultra-orthodox community. Mm-hmm. Let's, like, if we can't solve this issue, let's just ignore the issue and deal with other issues. And I think the sad thing is that today, the Israeli center is not defined by the notion that they have moderate worldviews regarding the conflict. I think they're defined by just being indifferent towards the conflict. So the Israeli center just leaves the conversation, right? Which is a kind of managing the conflict uh, approach. Because if you don't do anything, you just manage it. Yeah, right? but they're not even saying... Just... Yeah, they don't say it. So and, and it be. they're neglecting... Actually, they're, they abandoned the conversation. And by doing that, they're destroying the conversation. Because the only people participating in the conversation are the ideologues. Mm-hmm. The hardcore from right and left. And that distorts the conversation. So, so what would... What would a moderate approach, not an indifferent approach, but a moderate approach look like? So I, I gave a lot of thought to this. And with a lot of conversations with people that are, um, that are really on the field, that are really are dealing with this daily, I realized that there is a third approach. That between managing the conflict and ending the conflict, there's a third way. And I call it shrinking the conflict. Now, here's maybe a metaphor from the medical world. Okay. Okay. Let's say someone's very sick, and they diagnose a problem, and they realize he, he has, he, God forbid, has a fatal disease. And it's fatal, and there is no way to cure the disease. Okay? I'm from the 80s. I remember we heard that Magic Johnson is, is, uh, has AIDS. HIV positive. And we knew Magic Johnson. We loved Magic Johnson. You're not from the 80s, right? You're from... You're, you're 89. Born at the end of the 80s. <laughs> so you didn't grow with, you didn't grow with, with, with Magic Johnson. Yeah. And then he has AIDS. And we knew that you die from AIDS because we're in the 80s. We love Magic Johnson. We realized, okay, Magic is going to die. And we were mourning him before he died. And guess what? He's still around. And pretty healthy. Because what we didn't realize is that he could carry the disease without dying from it. And there was medical intervention that said something along the following lines. Maybe we can't cure the disease but what we can do we could turn a fatal disease into a chronic disease 
But we you, could turn a disease that will end your life to a disease that will always be a part of your life. But they call that managing the disease. No, that's not managing the disease. That is, managing is like, it's not keeping things the way they are. There's a lot of intervention. It's not passive. Meaning, we are now have a political system, and the fact that we can't solve a conflict doesn't mean there's nothing we can do. There is a lot of intervention that we can do, real moves on the ground, that would shrink the conflict, turn it from a fatal condition to a chronic condition, but just not end it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, the problem is we think that if, there's, if we can't solve the conflict, we'll just do what we're doing now and not do anything different. So, and then you're paralyzed, you're passive. Mm-hmm. And, and there are very interesting ideas that can shrink the conflict. Now, Isn't that what the Oslo Accords did? In a sense, I they would, shrank the conflict. I think, uh, I, exactly. I'm in the minority of people that think Oslo was a, was a very important move, and we should continue the momentum of Oslo. People on the right don't like Oslo because we withdraw from land. People on the left because it didn't lead to peace. Right. But if you don't believe in land or peace as the ultimate endgame, so I think the ultimate endgame is the following. It's a maneuver that shrinks occupation of Palestinians without shrinking security of Israelis. Mm-hmm. Think about the following. Let's say, let's say we'll try to measure the amount of occupation Palestinians are suffering from and the amount of security Israelis are enjoying. Let's just imagine that we say, okay, Palestinians are suffering from a level of 85%, 85% of occupation and Israelis are enjoying 90% level of security. I'm just making up numbers, okay, for the sake of this conversation. And let's say there's a few acts that by the end of them, we take down occupation from 85 to 10. Sounds like Gaza. And security goes down, doesn't go down at all. It stays at 90 or goes from 90 to 88. That would be a deal that I think most Israelis will take. It's not end of conflict. But it shows that it's not a zero-sum game. The zero-sum game we're trapped in is that the more we control Palestinians, the more safe we are. The less we control Palestinians, the less safe we are. Yes? And I'm not sure. And that is a false zero-sum game. There are many actions which these ideas exist that we can start doing tomorrow morning that would minimize our control over Palestinians and we would not risk the security of Israelis. Let's do them. For example, I'm going to challenge you here. Uh, no, no, you could because... you could ch- challenge me. I'll give you. I think I know. Uh, I've learned of ten type eleven steps. Mm-hmm. I might write write something. The eleven steps plan. Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. But I'll share with you. <laughs> two, we'll look out for it. We'll look out. I'll share with you two of them. Okay. Okay. And again, these steps will not solve the conflict. Every time I present them, they say this is not going to solve the conflict. I know. And we're doing them because we can't solve the conflict and we can't manage the conflict. Okay. Okay. So, Oslo started 25 years ago and was a great first step. But the reality created post-Oslo is an impossible reality. And here is how it is, and many people are not, don't know, just are not knowledgeable enough to understand how complicated life is post-Oslo. So I'll try to explain it very, very roughly um, in this, in, uh, and also I can't show maps here because we're in a podcast, right? So... So imagine it this way. The West Bank is divided in roughly into two, two categories. Categories, roughly. Categories that are controlled by the Palestinian Authority. Also, there is a division between A, land A, and B. I'm not going into that distinction. 
So about 40% of the West Bank is A and B, meaning... Palestinian. Palestinian. Palestinian autonomy. 60% is Area C, controlled by Israelis. The problem is, those 40% are not... Um, contiguous. Are not contiguous. The way it is, think. there's like an island of Palestinian autonomy surrounded by Area C controlled by Israelis. Then another island of Palestinian autonomy surrounded by Area C controlled by Israelis. So you have tens of Palestinian autonomous islands that are not connected to each other. Mm-hmm. Now that is the heart of the experience of the occupation. Why? Let's say you're a Palestinian in Ramallah. You're sitting in Ramallah. You're not really experiencing occupation. You are controlled by a Palestinian government that you elected. That's not really true because yeah, they didn't hold. What's that? That's their problem, okay? But, but you are not experiencing Israeli occupation when you are in Ramallah. Right? Your cousin in Nablus, in Shechem, also when he's there, he's in Area A, he's in autonomy. He's not really experiencing. He's, exper- he's a Palestinian and under a Palestinian, controlled by a Palestinian government. What's the problem? Now the Palestinian from Ramallah wants to go visit his cousin in, in Nablus. He might not be able to leave Ramallah today because maybe Israel decided that you can't leave Ramallah today because it's surrounded by Israeli-controlled a- area. And even if he can't, and I met people that that happened to them, mm-hmm. even if he can, he's on the road. That road is governed by the Israeli army. They might stop him and check him and, and do things that, will, that will, he will experience as humiliation right next to his kids. And maybe he can't enter Nablus that day because there is a um, a, um, a blockade yeah. on Nablus. So this is the... Ex- and, if, and he might be, not be able to leave Nablus on the way back. This is the occupation. This is where it's experienced. So there is an idea, and it's out there. I could give even the name that the person that, that, that has this map. His name is Dani Tirza. He's one of the top professionals in Israel dealing with maps and roads in the West Bank. Yes. And he and there is this map of a road that could connect all these Palestinian islands together. What would happen if we build that road? It will be it would not easy. It, it takes some tunnels and some bridges and it will take an investment. Not something that that would that would that would uh, you know um empty our pockets. Mm-hmm. And then you give the Palestinians sovereignty over that road. You know what that would mean? That would mean that you could leave your house in Hebron, go visit a cousin in Janine, that's in the north, and not bump into one soldier the entire way, because the entire way you're in roads controlled by Palestinians. And you believe that then knifing w- will no. be done? No, exactly. That's the classic question I get, and no, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I'm a cliche. No, you're not a cliche. You're just doing your job. You fell for it. You fell for it. You're just doing your job. (laughs) You're doing... Yeah. And no, the conflict will continue. That's the thing. The conflict will continue. We can't end the conflict. Let's give up the dream of ending the conflict and start... And start... And start doing the following. By that, what happens... So what? I'll live better with myself. I'll sleep better at night. Well, first, that's a lot. I think we didn't come to Israel in order to control Palestinians. We also didn't come to Israel in order to be threatened by them. And if there's any action that we can do that would minimize our control over them without being threatened by them, I think it's our moral and Jewish and prophetic obligation to do it. But tomorrow there's an intifada. I'll just conquer the roads again, right? I well, can do that, so it's an illusion that I left it because tomorrow I can invade well, if, again. If, if there'll be a war, obviously you'll start doing things. But if we can do, and like that one step, 
that would, I would say, take down the experience of occupation from 85 to 20, just that step. You say that, but leftists and Palestinians would oppose your Do opinion. Do you think no, that the people actually, living no. in Gaza feel like... No, no, this is, this is not... A, this is not for, no, I'm saying... Now no, imagine, but I'm saying... I'm it, just saying now, let me just, let's say there's 11 steps like what I just said. Mm-hmm. Every one of these steps breaks the zero-sum game in the sense that it's less control over Palestinians without less security for Israelis. Every one step is a small step, but the sum of small steps is a big step. Where will these sum of steps lead us? Not an end of conflict. Where will it lead us? In a reality where we are not, we have minimal, minimum control over Palestinian lives without Israeli lives being more threatened. So I think that the, the, the answer to that, that's not the classic, well, will that end the conflict, yes. is that the opposite side of the humiliation that you're drawing, yes. that you, 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 you outline this in your book beautifully, by the way, that the main emotion on the Israeli side is fear and the main sure. emotion on the Palestinian side is humiliation. But I think that the, the answer to that is that the, on the right, there's a feeling that, or on the right side, at least not of identity politics, but on, on actual ideas, there's this feeling that giving the Palestinians any level of autonomy or less occupation or isn't rewarded with, uh, it's, also, it's sometimes seen as weakness. Yeah, Professor Meaning Elman, there's a, there's uh, a, yeah, there's episode. the whole game theory idea, but there's, there is, there is a, a, a an anthropological, sociological uh, um, perception of of Arabs that sees that sees pride also as I mean the reason that humiliation hurts them is because they're a prideful people, and once you give them something, then they see that as weakness and they take advantage of it, and sometimes it might even heighten the. No, obviously, if you are go- if you believe that you could solve the conflict, yeah. this is a wrong thing to do. You're you are showing weakness. They'll take advantage of it next time your negotiations. You're giving up bargaining chips. You can't do this. What if 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 you want to go to a peace agreement? So don't give up anything now, and keep all your cards close to your chest, in order to in order to put them down, and score a lot of points, and and end the conflict with a great peace treaty. The thing is like this, and and and, but what if? Peace treaty is not really around the corner. So here's where we are. This is this is the something that left wingers don't understand. They don't realize that they are the best allies of the settlement movement. Is that the settlement movement and the peace movement are both status quo parties. The settlement movement, okay, we know why. They're against any changes on the ground. They want to just But the peaceniks are doing the same. They say, let's not do any changes on the ground until we have peace. But if peace is not coming, so there'll be no changes on the ground. So there is an unspoken, unconscious alliance between the peace movement and the settler movement. What I'm saying is, let's divorce actions on the ground from the great treaty, from the ultimate deal. Let's divorce them. Let's start doing now, right, right now, actions on the ground that will reduce the occupation without reducing security of Israelis. That breaks the false dichotomy of ending the conflict versus managing the conflict. That mm-hmm. is a different approach. It's a pragmatic approach. Now, obviously, we could argue about the small steps. Maybe that's not a good small step. Maybe there's another small step. Great. All I'm saying is let's argue about the small steps and not argue about only about the grand plan. Are you for it or against it? It would be a more constructive argument. 
And in this argument, there's actually room for new ideas and creativity. Mm -hmm. I imagine a hackathon of people coming up with better ideas of how we can really minimize occupation without minimizing Israeli security. I mean, it's just, it's almost a technical question. It's not an ideological question anymore. Well, what about, you know, just, I mean, we um, interviewed once, I can't, uh, the name is lost on me, but uh, there's a certain camp, no, 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 um, anyway, it doesn't matter. There's a certain camp that uh, believes that what about just unilateral withdrawal from the West Bank? So we take out from the West Bank and we leave them with that territory. What? No, that wasn't Barack Obama. Okay, never mind. Anyway, but... You know, why not just take a step where totally end the occupation? Well, the problem with – well, first of all, the, the, the these actions are unilateral. Yeah. That I'm asking. But after Gaza, I think many Israelis felt post-Gaza that the unilateral paradigm failed. And I think that's the wrong lesson to learn from Gaza. It's the type of unilateral actions that we did in Gaza that failed. And what did we do in Gaza? We did two things that we probably can't do all over again. One, the Israeli army and intelligence left Gaza. One of the reasons why the West Bank is so quiet, one of the reasons, not the only reason, is that the Israeli intelligence has so much flexibility in the West Bank. That will have to stay there if we want, again, not minimize Israeli security, right? That's why we'll never go down from 85 to zero, go down from 85 to 10, because the flexibility of our intelligence is something we'll have to sustain. So you do, so we do a unilateral action like in Gaza, but not the same action of Gaza. Mm-hmm. We don't. So and for the intelligence to stay, for the Shabak to be able, to, the Shabak for the Israeli, Shin Bet. for the Israeli intelligence to be able to, to have its to, uh, flexibility, you have to have certain art military presence. It can be less visible. We can make it, but it has to stay there, and that's why we can't end the conflict. Because no one will sign a deal if you have mm-hmm. yeah, your, your soldiers still visible somehow. And the second thing is I think that um, um, a, a massive withdrawal of settlers from the West Bank is just something that is impossible politically, sociologically. And again, if actions on the ground, if to do them, you have to, have, you have to wait till you'll have a broad Israeli consensus to evacuate settlements, you might be waiting for a long time. I'm saying let's do tomorrow or today what we can do today. And if we can't evacuate settlements and, and take the army out, let's do everything but. Your plan sounds a little bit like Naftali Bennett's plan. No, Naftali Bennett wants to annex 60% of the West Bank. I actually But give them autonomy C. in the rest, in yes, A and B. But that is a false plan because that's giving him autonomy in, in 160 separate islands. Ah, he doesn't want, want to unify them in no, one I, I want piece to, of territory. Well, one of my 11 st- first of all, I think, no, it's, it's just, it's a, as long as there are islands. Yeah. Yes. It's not really an autonomy. Right. I think if Naftali Bennett would realize that if you really want to take autonomy seriously, you have to connect them. You have to give them more land. You have to connect them to Jordan. You have to do all these steps. It makes so much sense, though. How can you not understand that? Well, here is the thing, because Naftali Bennett represents a different base, the base of settlements. Right. This plan means we have, to take a, we have to freeze growth of settlements. You see, the right and the left both reject this plan because of their I- ideologies. The left has to give up the ideology of peace. The right has to give up the ideology of land. But I think since most Israelis are beyond both ideologies, they just didn't realize that the next step doesn't mean being indifferent. It means being pragmatic. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure our 
audience understood what the book is about. <laughs> That's true. We were talking about other things. So That's what's true. the book about? That's true. <laughs> so this is a book that is an introduction to the, the conversation that's tearing Israel apart. The clash of ideas between right and left, the, the clash of ideas regarding what do we do with the territories that fell into Israeli hands after the Six-Day War. And what this do, it presents all the arguments of all sides and tries to articulate all the deep ideas of all sides. Now, since I'm also persuaded by all ideas simultaneously, readers might feel confused while they're reading the book. Because if you, for one minute, you, you put your guards down and you enable yourself to be persuaded by the right and by the left, you have a moment realizing, hey, we can't control the Palestinians. This is unethical and unJewish. In the next moment, you feel like we can't leave this ancient, biblical, sacred land. That would be unsigned. If you have these parallel emotions, which at the same time, then you are perplexed. And that is exactly where I, wanna, where I want you, where I want the readers. Because it's perplexity. It's what the Greeks called aporia. It's a moment where you know that you don't know where new things happen in your hearts and your minds. There's something unifying in it. And there's something unifying. And I hope that my readers will come out of the book different than they were when they entered the book. I don't expect left-wingers to become right-wingers. I expect left-wingers to understand right-wingers. I don't expect right-wingers to now become, you know, yeah. peace-seeking liberals. I expect them to, re to respect them and understand them because they had a moment where they felt it, where they felt that the other side was right. And so I wrote this book for the purpose of trying to heal the conversation. Today, a year later, and the book is out in English, I have another expectation from this book. I hope that having a healthier conversation about the conflict will lead to a new way of thinking about how to solve it or not solve it. I hope to introduce the, the paradigm of shrinking the conflict, mm -hmm. of small pragmatic steps right now, of things. You see, many people tell me if you're confused, you're paralyzed. And I think it's the other way around. Actually, when you're disenchanted from great ideologies, then you could move to, you're not paralyzed anymore. Because now you can move to small steps on the ground right away and not mm -hmm. wait for a diff, any brand of Messiah. The religious Messiah or the Messiah of the new Middle East, we're not waiting anymore. It's the end of, I think, when you're, not con when you're confused and disenchanted, we move from the politics of waiting for the per ultimate partner on the other side or for the ancient prophecies to become a reality, the different visions of the right and the left. We have to somehow put them on hold and start moving on the ground. Most Israelis don't want to build settlements. Most Israelis don't want to evacuate all the settlements. Most There is a broad consensus. What can we do on the ground that reflects that broad consensus? That consensus does not mean, per not mean being paralyzed. There are things we can do that won't end the conflict, but let's do them anyway. Yeah, you bufflement will send will set you free. <laughs> bufflement will set you free, right? You, you talk about how peace isn't, uh, and I like that in the book. How peace is often perceived as this uh, event, this singular event. That's yes. you know the Oslo Accords. They shook the hands on the grass, and like that was peace. Yes, but it's like really nothing changed. You had to actually do something for peace to be brought about. Yeah, I think we're suffering from the ex-girlfriend syndrome. <laughs> Oh, so we know that I too like well. that, but <laughs> you know how 
the mythological ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend is cripples your ability to be attracted to, to, to anyone in the future again, right? You're always comparing them to the ex-girlfriend. They always seem less attractive, less interesting, less smart than the mythological ex. So the six-day war is the ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend of any war that Israel ever fights. And the Camp David peace agreement is, is the ex-girlfriend of peace or ex-boyfriend of peace. Because anywhere we fight, we always feel, oh, it's not the six-day war. We didn't crush three armies in six days and destroy the Egyptian army in five hours and liberate you. We didn't, any, any after the glorify, actually, after the moments of the six-day war, any war we fight always seems like me- mediocre. And every attempt to make peace is not, you know, Sadat, Begin, Jimmy Carter, and Camp David, you know, ending the conflict. And I think we should somehow overcome these mythological exes. And Israelis have to realize that we can't ever win a war again. And we probably won't ever really have like the ultimate peace deal again. We have to settle for less than perfect. Settle for less than perfect. Oh, it's so hard though. (laughs) I hope your wife's not listening to this. (laughs) Yeah, please make sure. (laughs) Yeah. Please make sure this stays here. <laughs> okay. No, but I get what you're saying. It's interesting. Um, there was something that I think would hey, be done. good. Uh, we have to finish? Yes. Okay. Right. Well, I wanted to mention the Bet Shammai, Bet Hillel one, which is a good way to, to kind of give an example of what you're talking about where both sides are right. So I'm just going to, you know, instead of book. that, direct our listeners to read the book. Uh, it's a great book. Catch 67. You can find it on Amazon. You find it on Amazon? Yep. So uh, Mikha, just came out. you have uh, social media, website, and you're going to do a book tour. Uh, yeah. So, um, well, actually, I'm not very strong in social media. Okay. So you're going to have to listen to this podcast and just go buy the book. I'm, uh, I'm, I have, um, I'm a monk when it comes to social media. But you give talks, right? But I give talks. So where can they find? Yes. Uh, so first of all, I have a lot of talks on YouTube. Okay. You can find me on YouTube. And there's been a lot written about this book. There was a great article in the New York Times you could Google me in the New York Times. There's a great article in the New York Times. A lot of reviews are coming out right now as we're talking. And, um, and, and. Dates for the book tour. Re- yeah, read the, uh, the, uh, I'll be at the beginning of December, New York, Boston, the beginning of December. Perfect. And, but what's more important is to read the book and join the conversation. Politics is interesting. Israel is interesting when it's not divisive. It's not when it's not divisive. It's not about labeling. When it's about ideas, mm-hmm. it's very interesting. Awesome. Couldn't agree more. So uh, before we go, we have a collaboration with the Jewish Journal. You can find them at JewishJournal.com. There's a lot of good uh, columns and uh, editorials and articles there. So check them out, JewishJournal.com. And we accept donations. So go to to NJB.com and help us out. We do this on our free time. Dr. Micha Goodman, thank you so much for thank your you. time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.